Welcome to Soma Northwest this morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, too, want to say Happy Father's Day to the fathers among us. Um, I'm a father myself. It's a joy to be a father. It's one of the more sanctifying experiences in my life, uh, and it also reminds me each and every day that I will never be the perfect father that my children need and that they need to know that there is a good, good father that loves them, that cares about them, that will provide for them. Last week, if you were here, we finished up our series on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We looked each week at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount uh, starting back in November. And what we saw through that specific teaching at the beginning of Jesus's public life was Jesus casting a vision to people casting a vision to people about what life with God under the rule of God looks like. It was an invitation to come and to experience God as he really is, to, to know the life that God desires for us, to experience the freedom of knowing God, living with God, living under the rule of God. And this morning, we are going to start a new series that will take us through the end of the summer months, a series where we fast forward to the end of Jesus's life, to the end of Jesus's ministry. And we see that starting in John chapter 13. So if you would turn there, if you're using the Bibles on the seats around you, you can find that on page 525, John chapter 13. And over the summer months, we are going to be looking at John chapter 13 through chapter 17. We're going to hear from Jesus as he spends time, as he talks with, as he eats with his closest friends. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. When you look at the four Gospels, as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read through those Gospel narratives, those accounts, those three wrote from a very descriptive point of view. They wanted to put you in the moment of Jesus' life and ministry. John's a little bit different. John supplements in his book here that we are going to be in this reporting, quote-unquote, style of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John wrote with a more reflective tone. John wrote, looking back from what he had learned since his time with Jesus. He was the last of those four books. This was the last of those four Gospels to be written. And over time and through God's Spirit, John had an understanding of the significance of the events that he had witnessed, that he had experienced with Jesus that he didn't have in that moment. 
And what we're going to see throughout the weeks of looking in John chapter 13 through 17 is John allows us to see behind the curtain. John allows us to see what it meant for Jesus to say the things that he said, to do what he did. If you look at the book of John, you'll see that it has a part one, chapters 1 through 12, where John recounts um, Jesus's life. And if you remember last week when we talked about after Jesus finished up his Sermon on the Mount, that the crowd who listened to him marveled, that they were amazed. Why? Because he taught as someone who had authority, someone who taught with authority, an authority that was different from what they were used to hearing from their own teachers, from their own scribes, from their own religious leaders. And we talked about how that authority really boiled down to the fact that Jesus lived what he taught. Jesus lived what he taught. John gives us a look at that in chapters 1 through 12. He developed Jesus developed his disciples, his followers, the men who were with him, the women who were with him day in and day out that saw his teaching, heard his teaching, that saw him perform miracles. They were with him. They talked with him. But they didn't know the significance of what they were hearing, what they were seeing. In John part 2, which begins right here in chapter 13 through 1, 13 verse 1. John tells us that at this point, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Everything about Jesus' life, everything about Jesus' ministry was moving and pointing to this moment. And it would climax with Jesus' death, his burial. His resurrection. And on the verge of this cataclysmic event, this, this event that would change human history and eternity, John tells us that here Jesus is, tucked away in a spare room above some family's living quarters with his friends. Men that had listened to Jesus who had walked the dusty roads of Palestine with Jesus, who had watched him perform miracles, befriended people who had no friends, talked with Jesus about what life means and what it means to actually live. And all of this was in the context of inviting others, calling others to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now here we see Jesus in his last hours, focused on those who were closest to him. His friends, his followers. As John says, those whom he loved. Those whom he loved. The disciples must have known to some degree that Jesus cared for them. They must have known to some degree that Jesus even loved them. Now those Jesus loved. We're going to hear and experience just how much he loved them. Jesus is going to talk to them. He's going to teach them. And ultimately, he's going to show them by dying for them just how much 
he loved him. Look with me in chapter 13, moving down to verse 2. John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John tells us that Jesus knew a few things. Jesus knew, as we saw at the beginning, that his time had come. That his time on earth had come to an end. But John also tells us here that Jesus knew his father had given authority to him over all things. That Jesus had not given up his deity when he became human. He, had not give, he, he didn't give up his godness to become human. God, his father, had given him authority over all things. John tells us that Jesus also knew that he had come from God. That God had sent him here for this time, for this reason. It was his father's desire. It was his father's will. He had sent Jesus. And John also tells us here that Jesus knew that he was going back to God. Jesus knew what the end of the story would be. Jesus was looking forward, like the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 said, to, for the joy that was set before him. Like in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that Jesus knew the glory that would come, that one day every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Lord, that he would be seated at the right hand of the Father forever and ever and ever. So after knowing all of that and after hearing all of that, what would you expect to happen next? If you were watching this, if this was a movie and they, they zoomed in inside Jesus' head and let you see what he knew, the power he knew that he had, the strength that came from that, the confidence of what the end of the story would be. You would expect him to draw on that power in the moment, to rise up, to defeat Satan and sin and death, kind of like with Thor's hammer, you know, just boom, and this massive, massive energy for just defeating everything. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is God. Jesus rules and reigns over everything. That's what we would expect, right? That's how you would write the story. That's a good story. That sells tickets. That gets kids excited. That's how you would write the story. But no, that's not what happened. Imagine and picture the disciples lounging around this low table, probably about this high, leaning on their elbow, probably their left side, with their feet coming out from the table. Very different picture than that Leonardo da Vinci Last Supper painting. That was how they did it back then. This small, probably a small, cramped, probably pretty Spartan-looking room. Here's Jesus and his friends They're eating, 
you know, they're talking about life. And in the middle of that, Jesus gets up, John says. And he takes off his tunic or whatever outer garment he had. And he takes a towel that was laying there and he wraps it around his waist. And he takes some water. He pours it into this basin. And he begins to go from man to man, washing their feet. Jesus looked like a servant. That's how servants would have looked. No tunic, towel wrapped around their waist. And Jesus was doing what only servants would do. This was common in this day. That's why there was a basin there. That's why there was water and a towel there. Jesus probably didn't bring these along as props to get across his point. Those were there because this was common in the houses that you would go in and out of in that day. I mean, you understand what the climate was like, right? It's hot. It's arid. It's dusty. And they were wearing sandals all day. And I I mean, I don't mean to be offensive here, but I know... I mean, there are some of you guys who roll around in sandals, and that makes me really uncomfortable to see other men's feet. Um, and, you know, I mean, let's just be real. You know, just seeing other people's feet, we're walking around. I'm not trying to call anybody out here. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just being real. You know, I don't like looking at other men's feet. But think about how different it was in that day. I mean, hopefully you're clipping your toenails. You know, we're walking around mostly on concrete and asphalt. We take showers every day. So it's like our feet, hopefully, are relatively clean. But you imagine in this day, it's nasty. I mean, not to mention the dirt. Think about the animals going up and down the streets. Animal manure everywhere. People walking, trying to avoid it, stepping in it. Sweaty. This was part of the day. This was part of their experience. And washing somebody's feet was the least desired responsibility that you could imagine. But it was expected when you went into someone's house. It was expected that the host would provide water and a towel. That the servant of the house would come and would wash your feet off. But what's interesting is that in this Jewish culture, if they had a Jewish servant, odds are they wouldn't even let the Jewish servant wash the feet. They would reserve that responsibility for the Gentile, for the one that was beneath, for the one that was the lowest, the one that they looked down upon, the one that they considered equal to a dog. Lowly, menial task. And even when it was used ceremonially, like wives would wash the feet of their husbands, pupils would wash the feet of their students, children would wash the feet of their parents as, as, as a, a, a symbolic gesture of devotion, of submission. But never, ever, ever would someone with higher social status stoop to wash the feet of someone who was lower, who 
Never would that happen. And that's why it made Jesus' act here so jarring for the disciples, so unexpected. You can imagine as Jesus is going around from man to man, washing their feet, they're embarrassed. They're, they're, They're kind of shocked. They're in awe of this and not in a good way. They would have definitely wanted to wash Jesus' feet. They were his followers. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi. They revered him. And they were probably ashamed that they didn't think of washing his feet first. They were embarrassed that their teacher was stooping to wash their feet. They were probably looking at each other thinking, what do we do? Who's going to say something? Look at verse 6. We can always count on Peter. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus comes to Peter and Peter says, hold up. Hold up, Lord. What are you doing? Do you think I'm going to let you wash my feet? I would never let you wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. You don't understand. If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And that word share is a word that was used for an inheritance. Peter, if I don't wash you, you won't experience me. You won't experience what I have for you. You'll be cut out. Not washing means that Peter that we can't really experience, that we can't really know Jesus or what Jesus has. And this was Jesus' first lesson for his disciples here. You don't understand now what I'm doing, but afterward you will. Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples as a symbol for what was to come. As a symbol for what was to come, it anticipated what Jesus knew was in store for him. His death, his resurrection would wash, would cleanse Peter, would cleanse his disciples, would cleanse all who would put their faith in Jesus, would cleanse them from their sins. But without it, without Jesus' death, Without his resurrection, there wouldn't be any hope for being clean. Peter and everyone else wouldn't be able to know Jesus' love, to experience new life. 
And of course, Peter didn't understand this. Jesus told him, you don't understand. Peter responds like someone who doesn't understand. And he says, all right, Jesus, if that's true, I don't want to be left out. Give me a whole bath. Like, pour this thing all over me. Don't just stop with my feet because I want you. I want to know you. I want to have an inheritance. I want to be part of you. And Jesus responds, you don't need a complete bath. Let me just wash your feet. This is lesson number two. Peter's response gives Jesus an opportunity to dive in a little bit deeper. Just like someone coming in off the dusty road into someone else's house would not expect his host to rush him into the shower for a full bath, but would expect that his feet would be washed. Jesus is explaining to his disciples that his act of washing their feet was rooted in his love for them. They were his. They believed that he was who he claimed to be. They had committed their lives to him. His impending death would make them clean, but their feet would still get dirty. They were clean. He would wash them from their sins. But would they be perfect? Would they be free from sin? Would they never sin again? No. Jesus says, you don't need to be clean because I've already cleaned you from head to toe, but you will need me to wash your feet. They could get their feet dirty. And Jesus says, your sins, your subsequent times of unbelief, of selfishness, of stubbornness, doing what you want instead of what God desires, hurting other people, treating other people as less than you, you will need to be washed from those as well. And you will never, ever, ever be without the need of washed feet. John would pick up this theme in his letter 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is not talking in that verse about coming to Jesus for that initial fundamental head-to-toe cleansing. John is talking about in the warp and woof of life, when our feet get dirty, when we step into things that we don't want to step into, that if we go to Jesus and confess our sins, that God is faithful to say, because I have cleansed you once, now and forever, I will wash your feet today. Praise God. Praise God. Jesus is giving his disciples assurance here that they could know that their dirty feet would be cleaned time after time after time because Jesus loved them and he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the fullest extent of love. It wasn't a one-time deal. It would go on and on and on and on. Because I love you, Jesus is saying to his friends, I have made you completely clean. Because I love you, I will forgive your sins every time you confess them. That's hope for us today, isn't it? That's good news. 
That's good news that we don't have to live with the guilt and the shame, that we don't have to try to make up what we did wrong yesterday today. That if we simply go to God and confess and say, God, I'm wrong. That's why we have our confession time each week. It's not that, okay, here's your time just to confess for the week. You know, now you're good until next Sunday when you come back and we do this. It's to build a pattern, to build a rhythm, to show us that we need to live a life that is characterized of repentance and confession that we recognize that we always sin, that we will never be without sin this side of heaven. But we are assured after that confession time, every single week, right, that when we confess our sin, that because of God's love for us, because of what Jesus has done for us, we will be forgiven every single time. Amen. John makes a footnote here to remind us that Jesus said, every one of you are clean, that you are clean, but not every one of you. Do you understand what this means? Jesus had washed Judas's feet. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas knew, as John said at that moment, that he was going to reject his master and that he was going to sell him out. But Jesus washed the feet of this same man who had rejected him to show the full extent of his love. None of these disciples deserved this, especially Judas. But Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. He humbled himself to serve the one who would deliver him up to die. Look with me at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? No. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus gives his friends an example. I love you. I am giving my life for you. Now you go and do the same for each other. Jesus didn't expect them to die for each other's sins. Only he could do that. So what did it mean here? What did Jesus mean to give their lives for each other? I think one of the things that is innate innate to human nature is that we create social strata. We separate. We assign place to each other based on a lot of things. Income, education, 
culture, position, title, marital status, who's a parent, who's not a parent. We have all these categories, and we try to fit everybody into a different category. This is your place here. This is what you should expect here. This is where I'm at. In our pride, we usurp God's authority. And we say, you belong here. And I belong here. We try to tell each other, this is how life works. This is how the world works. This is how it is. Just get used to it. And sadly, it's not much different in the church, is it? We're not exempt from this. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And I agree with that, and I think it moves beyond just race and culture. I mean, we insert our own desires, our wants, what we prefer into how we treat each other. We let our desire for comfort, whether it's convenient or not for us, determine when or how we meet each other's needs. We withdraw from relationships when it gets complicated. We gossip about somebody else and what's going on in their lives only because I want you to know how to pray for them. We judge someone's commitment to following Jesus because they do, don't do it like we do it. They don't read the books that we read. They don't spend their time the way we spend our time. They don't show up to this conference or this event. We say, man, are you really serious? Are you as serious as me? Jesus takes a page out of what he knows is true about the human condition. And he plays upon that. He says, listen, you have all these categories. And it's true. A servant isn't greater than his master, you say. A messenger is not greater than the sender of that message, you say. Okay, then. I'm your Lord. I'm your master. I am the one sending you. But look what I'm doing. I am giving my life for you. I am flipping what you say is right, how you have ordered this world on its head, and I'm saying this is the way to live. This is the way to live. I am serving you, and I just did something for you that you would never think about doing for someone that was beneath you. Jesus is calling his disciples out of what they think life is like, what they have experienced life to be, and he's saying there's a better way. There's a better life. There's a better way to live. And since I am willing to give my life for you, you should be willing to give your life for each other. Since I love you in this way, this is the way you should love too. Turn with me over to 1 John. We're going to be bouncing back and forth over the summer from John's gospel to his letter. 
Because John, after the years of reflecting back, the Spirit of God giving him wisdom and understanding about what he experienced with Jesus, begins to pay that forward to us. It begins to say, this is what Jesus meant. This is why he did what he did. This is what it looks like in the life of the church, the people that he loves. 1 John chapter 3, starting verse 16, John writes this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And since Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What John is saying here is that no one, none of us in this room is exempt from this kind of love. No one should be unwilling to show humility. No one has an excuse not to serve and to meet the needs of each other. Christian piety, Christian excitement, Christian commitment is hollow, it's flimsy, and ultimately it is offensive to God if we don't love each other this way. This is what Jesus says love is, that we lay down our life for each other. And if we choose to not do that, to redefine love, we are saying to Jesus, what you did was cool, Lord but I've got a better way. Your sacrifice was great, but I think something different. This isn't some abstract kind of life here. You say you love God, then John says, show me how you're serving each other. You say you love God, show me what preferences you're giving up for the sake of that person sitting next to you. Fathers, do you say, do we say that we love our children? Husbands, do we say that we love our wives? Wives, do you say that you love your husbands? Friends, do you say you love each other? Summer Northwest, do we say that we love this church? Then let's not just talk about it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's act on it. See how Jesus has loved us and given his life for us. Let us give our lives for each other. And Jesus tells his disciples back in John chapter 13, if you live this way, if you do what I have done, if you take this example that I've shown you, about humbling yourself, serving people who you otherwise would view as lesser than you, showing humility, 
If you love in this way, you will be blessed in doing it. Remember what we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? The blessed life, the good life. Jesus says this is the way to live. This is the way that God wants us to experience life. You will be blessed if you do it. You will be happy living this way. And so this summer, as we go through John chapter 13 through 17, we're going to see that Jesus loves us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. But more than that, we're going to see how Jesus loves us. We're going to see how the love of Jesus transforms not only our relationship with God, but it transforms our relationship with each other. So many times we look at this story and we say, what's the point? It's, we should serve each other. We should serve each other. We should be humble around each other. But this is so much more than doing good to each other. This is so much good, more than doing good for each other. This kind of service is rooted in chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If we love God, we will love each other. And when we love each other, the love of God is made complete, is perfected in us. And here's the hope. We don't have to figure out how to do this on our own. What we are going to see is that God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are with us. Moving in us, transforming us pushing us forward in love. We are children of God because of the death and resurrection of the Son of God made real by the presence of the Spirit of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work in us, showing us what love is and empowering us to love each other. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Communion is a reminder for us of God's love, isn't it? It's a symbol, just like Jesus washing the feet of his friends. It symbolizes what lengths God was willing to go to show us that he loves us. And as we come and we take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the cup, we are proclaiming to each other that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again because he loved us and he will love us to the end. And so I want to invite you this morning to come if you have experienced that love. And what I mean by that is, do you, as the disciples did, believe that Jesus was who he said he was? That Jesus would do what he promised to do in us? Is your hope set in Jesus? Do you know that Jesus loves you? 
And have you been cleansed by Jesus? Wash your sins away. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you have it all together. But you know at the essence of who you are that you are loved by God. You have been forgiven by God. And your hope is in Jesus. If that is you this morning, I invite you to come and take this and celebrate. Celebrate what God has done for you. Celebrate that you are a part of a community of people that God has washed clean. I want to invite you this morning, if that's not about you, if you can't say that that's true, don't come up here and take this. There's nothing magical about this. This doesn't do something for you. It doesn't transform you. It is a symbol of what is true about you. And so, I would say, stay in your seat. There's no shame. There's no guilt in that. Nobody's going to look at you any differently. But we would love to talk with you about what this life looks like and what this life means. God loves us. God has laid down himself for us so that we can lay down our lives for each other. Let's pray. God, you have given us, through your Son, the example of love. That we know what love is because you have first loved us. And God, I pray for us as a church community that love would not just be something that we talk about, that it would not just be this abstract word that we throw around, but that when people see us, they would know that we know you because of the way that we love each other. I pray that that would become real. I pray that that love would become tangible in our relationships. And God, we recognize that we cannot do this. That we would never be able to do this unless you had loved us first. We thank you. We are humbled by that. And we fall at your feet and cry hallelujah this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.